Good morning, church. My name is Marvelous, and my dad's name is Martin Bukhari. We are covenant partners of First Presbyterian Church. This morning, God's word teaches us to confidently draw near to God. Christians are forgiven through the finished work of Christ, free to have confidence to approach God's throne of grace. Let us together find courage in God's amazing love revealed through his work and word. Please join my dad in reading the scripture. This morning, the scripture reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 5, verse 10. And I read the word of God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, and we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of a man in relation to God, to offer gift and sacrifice for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says, also in another place, You are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him and designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Here ends the Bible reading. Thanks be to God. Please follow me with the following response. All flesh is grass, and all its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. If you have your bulletins in front of you, please keep them there. If you have Bibles you want to look into, grab them. If you have them on your phone, we will get into God's word together as we worship our living God. Uh, I add my greetings to those you've already heard and encourage you to find peace in the steadfast love and sovereign grace of God. The uncertainty of war that is in our world gives a difficulty for people who are looking for peace. 
I was reminded of the power of God's sovereign grace this morning as I was uh, looking at some video feeds of Christians in the Ukraine who are singing hymns in subways, uh, who are sitting around family tables, uh, grandfathers leading grandkids, and the women with clear absence of the men who are a fighting age that are out fighting, singing the Getty version of He Will Hold Me Fast. And in powerful testimony of families who have faith, they have peace in time of war because of the promises of God. As we uh, just pray for and lament the war in our world, we need to also resist the temptation to apply the world's warring to the reality of our souls. Jesus is our great high priest, and he offers peace to all of us who believe. Peace internally, a fresh start from his grace. And all of us want and need a fresh start, don't we? Now, I'm going to warn you this morning, it's kind of a practitioner's sermon, and here's what I mean by that. If you're not actively wrestling with the astonishing grace of God, the peace that his forgiveness gives through the gospel, this may be a little bit distant for you. This is less than or more than an academic exercise that's intended to stimulate your intellect. Let me illustrate. I was speaking with a friend this week. His father taught BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, for multiple decades. After teaching BSF for multiple decades, he retired and wanted to continue to do ministry, so he started doing prison fellowship. My friend's father, it's a ministry to prisoners, relays the story to my friend this way. He says that he was doing ministry. They took him into death row. Amazing. He had a man come up to him and say, Sir, can God forgive me for killing my mother? My friend's father froze. After teaching the Bible for multiple decades, he found himself wrestling with the reality of the depth of God's grace. Is it truly bigger than all of our sins? Internally, his father told him that he was saying, I don't know. I don't know if it's that big. But externally, he extended the grace and invited him to trust the Lord's love. You see, we are disciples that need to discover the depth of God's grace. And if you're not at least willing to and wanting to, if not doing it, trying to apply it to very difficult places, then this sermon may be a bit distant. But for all those who long to know the depth of God and his love for you, let's study this word together. Jesus is first called a high priest back in chapter 2, verse 17. In this revelation of our Redeemer, it runs all the way through the book of Hebrews. That is why we're not going to spend a whole lot of time unpacking terms like Melchizedek. Yes, we're grateful. One of your kids is named Melchizedek. All right. But for our purposes, we're going to put that on pause to really go deep on that until later in the book of Hebrews. It is important to note that Melchizedek is the first person called a priest in Scripture back in Genesis 14. He'll resume this topic again in chapter 7. But the Old Testament reveals the, the position of priest as one that is appointed. Appointed for service in the tabernacle. A child, a son of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. Priests were called to make intercession for God's people through propitiatory sacrifices. That is, sacrifices of atonement, of animals, as the law required. 
so that God can have fellowship with his people and his people could have forgiveness for their sins. But the high priest was the priest of all priests. And he was a priest of all people. And he alone was allowed to pass through the tent into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. We read about that in places like Leviticus 16. And again, we'll unpack it in chapters like Hebrews chapter 9. For our purposes this morning, it's important for you to realize that we have a tremendous need for a sacrifice. We have just unbelievable provision in the work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who didn't pass through to go to the Holy of Holies, but he passed through the heavens so holiness could come to us. In the perfect life that he lived, though tempted in every way, was without sin. He died the propitiatory sacrifice that we need so the wrath of God can be satisfied and we can be welcomed into the presence of God with faith. Through the finished work of our great high priest, we can totally rest in God's grace. Because his grace grips our heart, we can hold fast in faith. And we can turn from our cowardice and have confidence before his throne. Let me ask you, do you approach God with cowardice or confidence? Does your heart condemn you or do you have courage because you are convinced to the core of your being about this astounding depth of God's grace, his mercy, his love? Let me ask you this. You are aware of maybe 3 to 4% of your sin. Do you understand that? Do you know that God himself, he fully sees you, and he's not only aware of the 96 to 97% of your rebellion that you are reluctant and unable to identify, but he sees all 100%. And he still loves you. He still wants relationship with you, and he proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, our high priest came and was the sacrifice that our sin needs. So I invite you into practitioner participation of this passage. But first, before we study the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word in prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word, the power of the gospel. We thank you for the freedom that comes from forgiveness, for your love that you lavish upon us through the work of Jesus we ask now that you give us hearts to receive, eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord. We do not long for an intellectual engagement, but true transformation from the power of the gospel. We pray for your spirit to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Martin Luther was a great reformer of the church, but before he understood the gospel, Luther believed that he needed to pay for his own sin through his moral performance. And the personal punishment that Luther gave himself was amplified by the culture of his day when the Catholic Church sold indulgences. Literally, you could pay your way out of purgatory to pay the price for your own sin. But this monk, who was just trying to mortify his sin through his own moral performance, encountered the majesty of God's grace and the power of the gospel when he read Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God that's revealed from faith and for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
And Martin Luther realized that he is justified before God. He is made right, as all of us are, not by our performance, but only through the work of Jesus Christ, who is our faithful high priest. And what Luther understood personally ended up being revolutionary for our whole world. Now, I say that by way of interpretation of a dream that Luther had. If you know Luther, he had lots of prayers where he battled the, de- the devil and different dreams. And one of his dreams in particular, I think it helps us in our interpretation and application of this passage. Luther had a dream that Satan came to him to accuse him and to condemn him. And he came with a long scroll. And he came to Luther and he unrolled the scroll and he read off what was on it. The scroll included every one of Luther's sins. And after he finished reading the scroll, Luther said, is that all you've got? And Satan said, no, it's not. And he took out two more scrolls, the second one longer than the first, and he continued to read Luther's sins before him. And then the third he unrolled, it was longer than the two that came before it, and all of them contained Luther's sin. And Luther said, Satan, you attempt to accuse me, but I think that you have forgotten something. And Luther exclaimed triumphantly, quickly, write on each one of them, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from all these sins. You see, Luther's personal transformation from his all-of-life gospel application is not just an inspiration for us, but it truly helps us with our interpretation and our application of this passage. Because Jesus is the great high priest, and we struggle with personal condemnation because of our sin. But the accuser who wants you to believe that you are the sum total of your actions, needs to be silenced by the power of the voice of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Therefore, we can move from cowardice to courage because God's blood cleanses us from our sin. Now, the context of this passage is significant because all of Hebrews, it ebbs and it flows with different warnings and welcomes. Last week, we read a warning. If you don't believe you will not enter God's rest. The promise of God's rest is for those who believe. Now the welcome is that Jesus Christ has done everything that's needed for us to rest in God's sovereign grace. The invitation and the welcome is there. And by the work of the high priest, we rest in his grace. We are going to wait to unpack all the intricacies of what it means to be a high priest, but I want to give a little introduction with Bavink's words from his book, The Wonderful Words of God, Work of God. It's a great systematic application. He says this, The whole of Christ's life on earth was preparation so that now in heaven as high priest, Jesus can be busy on our behalf. God is busy in Christ interceding for us so that we can rest in his grace we can receive the blessing of God's covenant faithfulness and forgiveness. And we learn to embrace this through two exhortations by way of applications that we find in our passage. The first is this. We hold fast to our confession. You see it in verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. The first exhortation takes us back to 3.1. If you have your Bibles, you can look back at chapter 3. Therefore, brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, 
consider Jesus. He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. This is significant that literally it ties together this way. We're encouraged to consider Jesus. He's the high priest of our confession. Well, what is this confession? For us, the confession and worship is the Apostles' Creed. It's the Heidelberg Catechism. It's the, Heidel, uh, the, uh, the uh, Nicene Creed. It's the different confessions and catechisms that we say that are our standard for life and practice. For the early church, the New Testament church, uh, they would have used creeds or, or standards such as Philippians 2, verse 6 to 1, or Colossians uh, chapter 1, 13 to 20, different uh, hymns of the day that articulated the hope that we have in the finished work of Jesus. But the way that the, the author wants to encourage the, the people to endure, to hold fast to their faith, is through looking to the high priest of our confession. And he does it in several ways. In verse 14, we see that our high priest, unlike the high priest of the Old Testament who passed through the tabernacle into the Holy Holies, we have, verse 14, a high priest who passed through the heavens. He came to us. And not only that, he was tempted in every way we are. Look at verse 15. We have a high priest who is, uh, who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He was fully human, so human that we read in chapter 5 uh, that he prayed with supplication and tears and groanings in verse 7. He was fully human, and yet, in chapter 5, we also read that this high priest was also our sacrifice. He paid for our sins. Not only could he fully identify with the struggle of our humanity, but he gives us freedom through being the sacrifice that our sin deserves. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die so that we can have peace with God. Now, there's questions at the end of verse uh, 10 where uh, Jesus is designated high priest. Uh, it, it comes with questions that are uh, about him being made perfect. And uh, you just need to know this without spending a lot of time here. This is Greek transliteration of Hebrew language that is actually talking about the designation and the appointing of high priest in the Old Testament. If you want to talk later, we can look at Exodus 29, Leviticus 4, Numbers 3. You know, a lot of fun stuff to talk about. But his, the point is that God designated Jesus as high priest. He appointed him. And Jesus was faithful, not only to represent God before people, but to bring God to people through his substitutionary sacrifice. What does this mean for our confession? Well, first, in 5.2, we see he deals gently with the wayward. He deals gently with the wayward. God's covenant grace holds on to us. Even when we're wayward, he's holding on to us so that we're invited at any time to return and hold on to him. But secondly, not only grace invites us to be from, move from wayward to faithful, but we are invited to celebrate the position of being righteous. You see, when Christ lived the perfect life we can't live, he died the death we deserve to die. That means 2 Corinthians 5.21 is true. That he who knew no sin became sin so that all who believe might become the righteousness of God. Now the argument of the author in Hebrews takes this high priestly discussion 
all the way through chapter 10. And in chapter 10, verse 14, he has a line that I think explains it all for us here. That by one single sacrifice, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. This is to say that in Christ, positionally, you are righteous, justified, forgiven, even when in your practice you are still being sanctified. We can hold fast in faith. We can push on in our perseverance because God's grace has grabbed our hearts. And this empowers us to approach his throne with confidence. This is the second thing that we see that is just an imperative of our passage. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tipping as we are yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Do you draw near to God in cowardice? Or confidence. The word confidence is important for you to understand. The Greek word parisia uh, is a word that is characterized by two things. Are you ready for this? This is so powerful. First of all, confidence is characterized by fearlessness. That means when we come to God, we do so without fear. The punishment has been paid. His anger has been abated. His wrath has been satisfied in Christ's propitiatory sacrifice. But not only fearless, we also come to God with the other aspect of this word, expectant of favor. We come in confidence. We're not afraid like a coward, but we have courage to approach the throne expecting God's favor. That is powerful. But even more than that, the grace of God compels us to draw near. You see this? Let us then with confidence draw near. God has come. He's passed through the heavens to us so that we are invited to draw near to him. Now, this is completely counter to human nature. The dependency on Jesus and the gospel drives us to draw near to God. That in prayer, we pray personally and intimately. That in our word study, we memorize it, we, we study it diligently with, with the potential idols of this world like money and material possessions. We give them freely. And in community, we love radically because we draw near to God. This is counter to every world religion and, co- and counter to everything about our human nature. And it gets crazier. We don't just draw near without fear, expecting favor, but we draw near to what? God's throne. Are you kidding me? Who approaches authority this way? And you may look at me snobbishly and say, well, I do, Mitchell. I'm not afraid of authority. And my question to you is, how do you react when you're driving and you see a police car? I don't know anybody who is driving and sees a police car and doesn't slow down. And certainly nobody pulls themselves over just to draw near the police officer and say, hey man, what's up? Nobody draws near for personal relationship. Why? Because all of us speed at times, don't we? All of us cut corner at times. And certainly with authority, we know that we 
none of us say the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth all the time. In fact, our human nature resists authority because we find refuge in a certain kind of ambiguity, a gray area, you know, just a little darkness. So why would we be compelled to approach God's throne in confidence, without fear, and expecting favor? Because, my friends, it is a throne of grace. It is the place where Christians receive that which we don't deserve. The total riches and righteousness of God that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a throne of grace that is established by God's own Son in His work. And what do we get when we approach this throne of grace? Look at the end of this verse 16. My page is turned when I turn my arm. We receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Mercy. You approach God's throne of grace and you do not get what you deserve. The penalty has been paid. Grace. That means you're given what you do not deserve. Righteousness by faith alone. The only thing that you bring before the throne is your need. That's the only part of the equation that you bring. So that when our struggles are overbearing, we get more mercy. When our sins are accumulating, we get more grace. When persecution and problems are amassing, God is on a throne. His throne. Demonstrating that he rules and by his redemption he's making all things new. When we learn the depth of God's grace on this level, the peace that we can have through the work of Christ alone, that the high priest himself who passed through the heavens, that lived the perfect life and died the death we deserve to die, we will find true security, security in God's love. If God is for us, friends, who can stand against us? No one and no accusation of the enemy. We find strength in God's work. We don't need an altar. We don't need a priest. We don't need penance. We don't need confession. We don't need sacrifice. We have everything we need in the work of Jesus. It is finished. We gain significance in status. Do you believe this, church? We become children of God. And good news, on the throne is our Father. He loves us. He doesn't look at us in condemnation. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. The significance we have in the status gives us a new substance for our life, that we live on God's mission to show the love of the Father to this world, to extend his mercy and his grace as far as the curse is found, because we are given salvation through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. We live from victory. It is finished. Your sin is paid for. It is finished. Death is dead. It is finished. The grave is empty. It is finished. Jesus has risen and ascended. He sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes on your behalf. It is finished. He's given you a spirit that you can walk in a newness of life. We live from victory with a sureness that comes through the finished work of Jesus. That's a proper confidence in Christ alone. Friends, you're invited to wrestle with the depth of God's mercy, no matter what our deeds are, knowing the surety we have in the saving work of Jesus. I can think of nothing more powerful to end on 
than the culmination of this article from the, um, this, this argument from the author of Hebrews. It's found in chapter 10, 19 to 23. Read it on the screen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Would you help us with our unbelief? We long to live the peace that you offer through the work of our high priest. We ask that your spirit would grip our hearts with your grace, that we would truly hope and hold fast. Approaching your throne with confidence, Lord, not fearing, but expecting the favor that we have in Christ through his faithfulness. Lord, we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.